Welcome to another episode of Hidden Perspective. This is Rob Greco. Moving away from coronavirus talk, I want to devote some time to a new issue, the war on drugs. As with many topics, the political and media's discussion of the drug war has a lot to be desired. It's often simplistic, uncritical of society's drug laws and their effects on individuals and the wider community. So, to start off, I recently sat down with Tristan Aubrey, at a distance, of course, who's a Canadian addictions counsellor and a good friend of mine, to learn more about drug addiction. We spoke about what constitutes drug addiction, how this view has evolved over time, and the broader impacts of drug policy on addiction and society. I thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, so I hope you do too. Tristan Aubrey, thanks for coming on the Hidden Perspective podcast. Thanks for having me, man. It's a pleasure. Awesome. So by way of introduction, do you want to just explain to the audience what your professional background is? Yeah, so I'm an addictions counsellor. Um, I'm employed here in Alberta by Alberta Health Services. Um, I've been doing this for about five years now. I was hired in 2015 as a counsellor um, with a background in addiction and mental health. So prior to that, I spent about five or six years as well working in the addiction field, um, sort of in the, the, the patient care realm, um, sort of in a subclinical role. Upon finishing my university degree, then I was hired as an addictions counselor. Um, soon enough, not yet, um, but soon enough, we're hoping to be um, declared as a registered profession within the province of Alberta as well. Um, can't call myself that yet, a registered addictions counselor, but hoping within the next year here, um, barring some legislative fallout. So important to recognize that uh, my own personal views do not reflect those of my employer, Alberta Health Services. Um, these will be kind of all my own personal views. I'll try and mix in as much um, evidence-based information as I can, and then a little bit of my own personal philosophy on addiction. Okay, awesome. That's great. Um, so let's just take it back. What do we actually mean by the term drug addiction? Oh, man. Um, you know, the, the word addiction itself is so so loaded, so sociopolitically loaded. Um, like for me personally, I'll use the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual, um, which is put out by the American Psychological Association. Um, they actually don't use the word addiction throughout the entire manual. Okay. Um, what we probably consider addiction would be their diagnosis of a substance use disorder, um, of which they have many based on the different um, classifications of substances. So, um, you know, when it comes to that, the DSM-5, which was released in 2013, there's sort of like 11 general criteria that are related to harms associated with substance use that people will generally experience. And generally, those fall into an inability to have control over one's use, um, interpersonal conflict as a result of our use, um, reduction of social functioning, repeated attempts to abstain from use of a substance or a drug, um, the presence of physiological withdrawal sy symptoms. Um, as well as cravings or a strong desire to use drugs and an increased tolerance for, for a specific drug. Now, that's a lot. Um, mm. and we colloquially talk about addiction 
um, we often actually forget that there's also an entire side of behavioral addictions as well. So we have drug addictions, behavioral addictions. Mm. Uh, the research isn't as, as tight on behavioral addictions. It was considered for the DSM-5. Um, but as of right now, the DSM-5 does just have consideration for substance use disorders. Um, the word addiction has been around for a long, long, long time. Generally, you know, I would say that it's a, a socially determined term of describing somebody who doesn't have control over their drug use anymore. Mm-hmm. So those are kind of the two hands between those two. Okay. Okay. And so you were mentioning those uh, 11 criteria. So does that mean that if somebody fulfills just a few of those, that they would be clinically described as being addicted to a substance? Is that right? Yeah. So dependent on the substance, it, it varies a little bit within the Diagnostic and Statistic Manual. Generally, meeting two or more of those criteria since 2013 would classify somebody with a substance use disorder. Now, that being said, it goes from mild, uh, moderate, and severe. So the mild would be two or more of the criteria. I believe typically it's about four four of the 11 criteria for a moderate substance use disorder. And then six or more would be a severe substance use disorder. Okay. Okay. And... Tristan, you were also mentioning there that there's behavioral addiction. So what would be an example of that, just to explain to the audience? Probably the first um, like widely popularized behavioral addiction would be gambling. Um, mm-hmm. We see a lot of the same sort of neural pathways and, and uh, neurotransmitters that are sort of implicated within that and a lot of the same behaviors um, and negative effects with gambling as we do with other drug addictions. Um, gaming is a big one that's coming up right now, probably in the past 10 years, um, because yeah. we do know that, that the prevalence of, you know, people experiencing harms associated with excessive gaming, whether it's like video games or, um, phone games, like, sure. Yeah. Um, what's the one with the, uh, candy crush, those sorts of things. <laughs> right. Right. So, but, uh, we, we see a lot of similar. We might take that box. Exactly. Yeah. Um, then you get into, you know, like shopping, those sorts of things. So really, uh, you and I were talking earlier actually about Gabor Mate, and he's a big proponent of saying that like everybody has an addiction, which is maybe a little bit of an extreme example of that, but where, um, you know, basically any behavior that's intrinsically, um, motivating, um, can, can result in an addiction as well. Right. I, I mean, would it be a stretch to also classify something like, workahol like workaholics as being <laughs> fitting into this addiction or like how do you how do you distinguish between someone who's engaging in potentially destructive behavior like working a hundred hours a week ignoring their personal relationships is that is that where we're heading absolutely well you know i don't know if that's where we're heading because again when we talk about behavioral addiction i think that like i said the word addiction is actually not used really in a, in a clinical term right. Even yeah. though for some reason a lot of our like public health services and stuff still use the uh, the term, I personally actually have a problem with my role being called an addictions counselor because I don't just work with people with addictions. Okay. Um, I work with people who fall in subclinical categories. I also do prevention work for people who don't already have addictions or substance use disorders. Right. Um, it's kind of just a holdover because addiction was sort of one of the first terms that we used to use um, right. for this before you know, substance abuse and, and gaming and gambling and stuff came into sort of the public health realm. Okay. So then how do we distinguish between something like recreational drug use and addiction? Is it simply a matter of 
looking at those factors that would be applying in the case of someone classifying as uh, someone who's falling under substance abuse and someone who isn't? Yeah, so I mean, uh, you actually just put it there is there's the substance abuse category as well, which is sort of like our intermediary. So, you know, I think most people would would lump in addiction with a substance use disorder or even a severe substance use disorder. And also interchangeably, we use the word, the, the terminology substance dependence, mm-hmm. um, sort of our most extreme ends of substance use. We also have the no use category of people. We have people who sort of use, have tried a substance or a drug a couple of times. And then we also have our recreational users. And past that, we have the abusers. So individuals who are abusing substances may have like those, one of those negative effects or one of those 11 criteria, um, but are what we would call like subclinical um, or don't meet the clinical threshold for a substance use disorder. Okay. When you talk about leisure or recreational use, usually we're talking that people are using substances for the purpose of like leisure and enjoyment. That's not really causing any lasting harms to the individual. Um, and so what the funny part about that is, though, when we look at the harms, one of the 11 harms is that there's potentially legal issues that come mm-hmm. as a result of somebody's substance use. Right. Um, this is when we get into sort of like a sociopolitical con, uh, context later on. Right you could potentially have somebody who's considered abusing a substance just because of legal issues. So let's say a cannabis user who had a, you know, a simple possession beef. Now you've actually, just because somebody has been caught possessing that substance, right. Automatically turn them into an abuser of a substance because of the social or sorry, the political and legal. Right. Right. But really to the the negative category, so to speak, just because they broke a law that was on the books. Exactly. And so that in that sense, it's not that person that's actually experiencing that negative impact. It's society who is imposing that negative impact Uh, upon the individual. Um, Yeah. Okay. And so what do we know about people who become addicted or who classify as someone who has a substance abuse disorder? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) It's a it's a varied answer at this point um, and basically what i'll give you is um what what some of us call the non-answer <laughs> and what the non-answer is 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 really um you know as the addiction or substance abuse field really got sort of accepted into public health probably i would hazard a guess between 40 and 50 years ago um the field also started sort of absorbing and taking on some of the values and some of the new trends within public health and one of those was the holistic model and so okay. we know that now, looking at our public health care systems, it's not just, you know, hospitals and doctors. We have a whole sort of multidisciplinary teams that are working with individuals and a lot of different perspectives that are used to treat individuals. Um, what that creates for us and what we, at the end of the day, is what we call the biopsychosocial spiritual model. Um, okay. And so what that all, just to kind of like unpack that, and it's funny, yeah. there's a bunch of like prefixes and nothing really in there. That's right. We have potential sort of like biological predispositions that people have innately. At the same time, there's people who, as a result of um, maybe lifehood experiences, childhood experiences, those sorts of things, grow up with psychological maladaptations, um, usually in response to stress. I'll put sort of like an emphasis on there with trauma as well. Um, People's social contexts often are like pretty good determinants of, of their addictive potential. 
as well at the very end of it. So those are the kind of the three that, that really made up um, that new look at addictions. Then later on, we start to realize, hey, spirituality has a really big piece in people's recovery. Why aren't we adding that in? Because we're seeing people who could maybe have all three of those um, indicators, the biological, the psychological, and some of the social context in there. But they have really, really strong spiritual lives, and that has allowed them to recover from their substance use disorders or addictions. Um, right. Just as sort of like micro examples of all of those, we've identified through like genome mapping that there are specific genetic risk factors for addiction. Um, we see a huge correlation between psychological impacts of trauma with addiction populations. Um, we know that certain populations within society are more susceptible to addiction than than to others, and there's obvious kind of social factors within those populations. So those are kind of just a couple of examples of why that entire paradigm is is as sort of as broad as it is. Um, that's one of the reasons that I call it the no answer is because basically we say a, a person's entire experience is what lends itself to addiction. It's not just one or the other. Right. Um, right. You know, typically like to see it almost as like playing the numbers. Um, you, know, you could have a specific individual that has a couple of different risk factors in one realm, a couple others in another, but have, like I say, a really strong psychological, adapt, psychologically adapted mindset. They might not be as disposed to to addiction or substance use, um, but if you had maybe just one more risk factor in there, that could push somebody towards addiction. Right, right. So it's not any given particular factor. It's it could be uh, a combination of a few of them, a combination of all of them. There are just so many varied factors that could trigger some type of addiction. And so that's that's our understanding right now. Is that right? Oh, the the human experience is complex. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> For us well, to sort absolutely. of just like reduce people into you know five risk factors and say that those people are going to be addicted it's 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 right. it is just that it's very reductive um, like some survey or something <laughs> yeah um, as much as we try to do it, and as much as we try to pigeonhole people in we certainly we do see trends sort of one rhyme or reason as to why people become addicted okay great and how has this view changed over time this might be another really loaded question and something that that would take a while to unpack but <laughs> <laughs> how do you think it's changed over time Man, it's uh, it's it's really really interesting to see actually, um, and it's at times hard to not to get mad looking at the sort of course of how we viewed addiction over time. Um, you know, the very earliest sort of like writings about addiction as early as like the 1700s, typically mm. uh, about alcoholism, mm. was sort of this moral perspective, um, and so people believed that you know, my guess is that as a result of sort of the um, the lifestyle impacts that alcoholism would have on people it was just assumed that these must be morally insufficient individuals That's right cause them to drink and they you know um, oftentimes it was churches that were treating these people or would be the only ones that were maybe not treating but supporting these individuals and so right. um addicts at the time especially would be kind of considered the social invalids um as a result of their moral failures now what we see is um, through closer kind of to the 1800s and the beginning of the 1900s, you have this idea of like a, a biological um, brain disease sort of model where um, there must be sort of like an affected mind that results in, in alcoholism, alcoholism specifically again. Um, <clears throat> later on, closer kind of to 1930s, 1940s is then when, um, you know, you have some of the 
um, opiate-related um, awakenings where people are realizing that we're abusing opiates in sort of a very mm-hmm. range. Um, and at that point, people start to begin to realize, hey, like maybe there are some similarities between these different um, addictions, which is kind of when that word really started to come around. Um, again, though, not a whole lot of like research capability in terms of like neurobiology neurobio- and um, brain imaging and stuff like that, and just certainly not close to like genome mapping and things like that. So, kind of just this this wide range of uh, of ideas that that there's some sort of disease that's that's um, creating addiction for people. Okay. Then, like I said earlier, you kind of move into like the 1960s, 1970s. Um, we're finding that addiction actually is more prevalent than everybody thinks. It's just that everybody's being so ashamed of and hide, uh, ashamed of it and hiding it. Mm. Um, now that we can sort of shift over to this disease-based model of addiction, it sort of frees up a little bit more for people to, to come out with it. Obviously, there's still, even to this day, a ton of shame associated with addiction. Mm-hmm. Um, but that next step sort of opens up people to be able to talk about it a little bit more. As a result, addiction and mental health sort of become more, like I said, integrated with public health care systems. Um, and what you see, again, is like this, this holistic model, the biopsychosocial spiritual model sort of comes out of the health sciences field, the inter, sort of interface between those two. Um, later on, much later on, we have the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study, ACEs, um, which was landmark in, in terms of sort of behavioral health and especially addiction. Um, What that looked at is a longitudinal study um, that looked at social factors like exposure to abuse, neglect, exposure to mental illness as a child, um, substance abuse in the home, incarceration of a parent, separation of caregivers, and they actually found a multitude of negative health outcomes, um, heart disease, obesity, depression, um, intravenous heroin use actually was was linked to, to all of those different risk factors as well. And basically what you saw was a very clear delineation between multiple factors, um, multiple adverse childhood experiences that lend themselves to, um, again, the stacking of those negative health outcomes. Okay. All right. Well, yeah. So says a lot there to, um, to really think about. So where do you see this going in the future now? Um, well, using again, the non-answer, (laughs) <laughs> a holistic model means that we just have to find different sort of blind spots. Um, and basically what that means is looking in the places that we haven't looked before. Mm-hmm. I think looking um, at the places that we do, we have a lot greater sort of biomedical capacity, um, neuroimaging, genome mapping, those sorts of things will definitely advance our ability to maybe hurt towards it early detection um, of predisposition towards addiction um brain imaging to figure out where exactly things are going wrong or going awry um i know that there are we're sort of looking at um genomic restructuring as well that could potentially even you know several years down the road cure addiction or cure the the sort of addictive maladaptations in the brain um there's also as we look towards sort of social movements as well um, there's a lot of efforts at reducing those social determinants like exposure to violence and abuse mm. um, sort of from my perspective as well there's always imp- always improvements in the field of applied psychology um, those are looking at treating underlying mental health problems that people might be using drugs to cope with um, again we talked about those sort of co- cognitive maladaptations and 
unhelpful coping that people engage in with drug use. Um, and it's a very sort of rapidly developing field in terms right. of applied psychology. Um, and then there's the places that we haven't even looked before. Spirituality is a huge one. Um, mm. We all know about the mindfulness revolution that's happened right. in the past five that's years. Right now, yeah. And that's really being taken on wholeheartedly. Like we're, we're, using, we're using that in the, the field of applied psychology, but it really is a spiritual concept at the very basis of it, right? And so it's sort of weaving itself through. Um, so that spirituality sort of aspect has a lot of good indications um, for addiction treatment in the future as well. Um, and then, like I said, there's there's blind spots that we still haven't even figured out where to go yet. Yeah, yeah, no, it's um, there's definitely a lot that's um, that could definitely be explored, especially with all these new technologies and when people just start really diving into all of those different areas. Um, so what does the literature or evidence say on the most effective ways that people can actually overcome a particular addiction? Well, <laughs> it's a... It's Again, a, another non-answer. <laughs> yeah. Well, no, it's, you know, we have we have some, like, really, really, really strong evidence. Um, and that, that's sort of the reason I laugh, is we have really, really strong evidence for a few different ways to treat addiction. Um, but at the same time, we also know that we can't get just sort of pigeonholed into those same old methods of treating addiction. Mm. Um, as of right now, sort of like the two different ways that we look at treatment, we have pharmacotherapies and we have behavioral interventions. Um, so pharmacotherapies being looking at drugs that can reduce cravings um, for people. We can be treating underlying psych psychological problems, like let's just say somebody was using a, a drug to cope with depression putting them on antidepressants has a pretty good indication for also affecting that substance use as a result. It kind of makes sense directly. Mm -hmm. um, we also have pharmacotherapies, the harm, more harm reduction style, where we're looking at replacing a more sort of dangerous illicit substance. Typically opiates at this point is where most of the research is into. Um, so trying to replace, let's say, something like fentanyl or heroin um, with a drug. You know, you've probably heard of methadone, suboxone. Um, yeah. There's you know, yeah. and those sorts of things. Um, so, so, uh, so, so that just for the audience is almost like a replacement for the heroin, but it's much easier to wean someone off it as opposed to the actual heroin itself. <laughs> the the research is still out it with regards to the actual weaning off of. There's pretty good early indications for, for Suboxone with regards to that. Um, methadone has been a pretty mixed bag specifically. Okay. Um, methadone is the longest. We call it an opioid agonist therapy. So like you said, just a, uh, a drug that works on the opioid receptors just as the illicit drug would um, to, re to directly replace it and therefore get somebody off of maybe some a, a more risky drug that they've procured on the street through nefarious means. Mm -hmm. um, but what we do know with regards to those ones specifically is that we can reduce the harms, those direct harms associated with it. If we're giving somebody that is, you know, tested in a lab, created pharmaceutically um, yeah. and, and being monitored by a physician, um, you have much better other health outcomes um, and people less likely to be engaging in, in risky lifestyles. Right. For procurement. Right. Right. That might also speak to the potential need to commercialize some of these street products that are now in, in the sense that you make them uh they're made by pharmaceutical companies you have experts who can who can sell these drugs to you and mm. teach you exactly what's going on mm -hmm. potentially yeah 
Yeah, potentially. So then on the other side of the thing, you have the uh, the behavioral therapy. So looking at um, a couple of different routes. Number one is getting people engaged with their peers. Um, we need to reduce shame, engage individuals in healthier lifestyles. Um, and usually a really good way to do that is to engage them with people who have been through recovery themselves. Um, you need to be able to see sort of what the light at the end of the tunnel looks like. Right, right. Um, psychological treatment, like I was talking about earlier, um, we can enhance motivation with it. We can teach people to cope in a more healthy way. We can improve social functioning. We can reduce the risk of relapse with drugs. Um, this specific realm is where we're seeing those the new evidence for therapies involving drugs themselves. Um, mm -hmm. Right now, I think, was it last week or the week before, the uh, FDA actually approved MDMA-assisted psychotherapy. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. PTSD, not necessarily for drug addiction, but for post-traumatic stress disorder. But we do know that people with PTSD have a higher incidence of, of having um, a substance use disorder as well. Right. Yeah, I also saw the use of psychedelics to help people with uh, nicotine addiction, people smoking mm -hmm. and, and, and running them off that, which is a, um, a pretty interesting irony that <laughs> something that could actually help people with drug addiction is in fact a criminalized drug. That's something that uh, policymakers will have to come to terms with. Yep, absolutely. Um, and so that's, you know, <laughs> again, going to sort of our socio-political context is right. sort of placing that the onus in, in physicians and, and pharmacists to be able to be the controllers of that, of that drug market is mm. very sort of like interesting paradigm in and of itself. Right. Um, but looking early on there, there's pretty good indications for this stuff. And that's kind of what I mean by not getting pigeonholed into our specific, you know, gold standard therapies and being able to reach out and look around and see what some of the new emerging evidence is telling us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. A really, really interesting one, and this is one that um, I, I'm not sure of any programs within Canada that are that are going this way. But one of the uh, best indicated interventions for uh, for substance use disorders is actually what we call community reinforcement. Okay. Um, and so it's giving people economic incentives, so like vouchers. I think in some cases it's been used with cash as well, okay. um, and just making those things. Um, or sorry, providing an incentive like cash or voucher for abstinence or decreased substance use. Okay. Um, and so like literally just giving a guy cash at the end of the week when he has a couple of, of clean uh, urine screens for for crack or whatever somebody's, you know, substance that's, is. That's fascinating. Uh, Tristan, what have been some of the most effective treatment for you when you're engaging with your clients? What are some of the some of the treatment or strategies or tools that you've imparted on your clients that have really helped them? You know, I've already, I've always believed that um, sort of the very basis of my practice of a, as an addictions counselor is accepting people where they're at, for who they are and exactly where they're at. Right. Um, you know, the, the addiction world is so full of shame. Mm. I've, I've talked about that quite a bit already. Um, but also, um, is very hidden. And so the more that we're able to sort of accept you people and allow them to feel um, heard by mm -hmm. the in the field, mm -hmm. I think a really, really long way. We need to find new and um, better ways of, of engaging people within that. We do know um, that we're not treating as many people with substance use disorders as we could be. Mm -hmm. That might be a result of, you know, 
within Alberta here are, are health public health systems already being um, being pushed to their limits. But at the same time, there's there's a lot of people that we aren't getting to if we don't have people walking through the doors and they don't start getting treatment. That's right. So just casting a wider net. Absolutely. Now, beyond that, um, for me, the next step is always basic needs. I am a really big believer in, in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. And if we're not make, meeting our basic, you know, safety, security, um, food, water, and shelter sort of needs, right. then we can have people looking at making healthier choices for themselves beyond that. Right. Um, you know, a big part of it too, there, there is a lot of sort of co- coercion within within systems as well. So whether a person feels coerced by their probation officer, or their family, their partner, their friends, um, I personally kind of just on reflecting, I don't think I've ever made changes myself based on other people's insistence. Mm, yeah. How could I expect somebody else to change if, you know, the counselor is sitting across, in the chair across for them is insisting that they change. And so really just coming from, like I said earlier, that listening to your moms. <laughs> exactly right and <laughs> how can you be said to listen to anyone else there's a reason one of the first words we we learn is no right yeah. <laughs> yeah so uh, i mean past that past engaging people past having people feel accepted um then those that allows people sort of to move on to those evidence-based therapies that we have um i think you know we do a lot of the research on the, the counseling parts and the pharmacotherapies we don't really do a great job of looking at what gets people engaged in the first place Right. Okay. And so you touched on their Maslow's hierarchy of needs. So basically the idea that if, if people don't have their basic needs of shelter and food and these things covered, then how can they be expected to self-actualize into a you know, fully productive person in society? So are you noticing that a lot of the clients you're dealing with are coming from low socioeconomic status within society, um, suffering with poverty, homelessness, is there a strong correlation there? Yeah, I would say there's a correlation. I, I, again, always want to be a little bit careful about pigeonholing ourselves because we know that addiction or substance use disorders affect people um, across all socioeconomic backgrounds. Okay. That said, we do see an overrepresentation of, uh, you know, specific, um, specifically low income and people living below the poverty line. Right. Um, and yeah, you're totally right. Like we can't get up into self-actualization, which is to me sort of becoming the best that we can be mm-hmm. um, without ma- meeting the sort of basis of that pyramid. So, um, you know, we do, I would hazard a guess to say about 10 to 15% of my personal caseload is actually homeless. Um, mm-hmm. We expect somebody to, you know, be working on their goals and strategies that we've talked about in, in sort of the counseling and therapy piece when they have to worry about where they're getting their next meal or where they're going to sleep for the night. Um, right. Right. Counterintuitive. Do you have any really clear success stories in your experience that stand out of, of someone who's completely turned their life around? Yeah. Um, you know, it, that's a complicated one though for me because, you know, I personally, I work on, uh, on an intensive case management team. And so what we do is we take people um, who have what we call like complex barriers um, or multiple multiple barriers um, and try and provide them with, with that holistic care or as holistic as we can be within our, within our constraints. Okay. Um, and so I have a lot of people who will 
potentially be using drugs for the rest of their life. I have a lot of people who will have complicated substance use histories, um, you know, who are currently experiencing abuse and neglect and um, are in lowest socioeconomic status. Um, and so there's a lot of sort of confounding factors and a lot of things that get in the way of, of doing the treatment. So um, I've gotten used to sort of people coming in and out of that harmful use. Okay. And you never really know when, when you know somebody might be flowing back into our services. Right. A lot of people who have sort of like worked with, moved, we've moved away from, and then we'll re-engage after maybe a major life event or something that happens again. Um, I have gotten really good personally at, at finding smaller, um, let's say, successes. We don't only look at abstinence. Um, you know, again, a big part of meeting people where they're at and engaging people who might not otherwise be engaged in our services is finding unique ways to do that and finding different goals that maybe they can start with and start to build a little bit of personal momentum with, whether right. that means maybe reducing their use, maybe um, looking at cr decreasing some of the other harms associated with their use. Maybe it means getting off of needles or intravenous drug use, um, using a different substance, those sorts of things. We have to be really, really sort of crafty in, in how we engage people. Right, right. I think that brings me to my next question is that from a societal level, what can governments and policymakers be doing to minimize the negative effects of addiction? Yeah, I mean... Another loaded question for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, the, trying to figure out exactly what branches of government can actually intervene with, with substance misuse, I think, is the biggest sort of question to all of it. And, um, you know, it's caused me to sort of reflect as to where are some other branches of government that could be intervening. But I guess I'll just talk about the ones that currently are. Um, and where a lot of it really started was with the legal system. Mm -hmm. uh, and the legal, I think, for in some instances, for good reason, because the legal system is one of the few systems within our governments that can actually compel people to do things. Yeah. Um, addiction also falls onto healthcare systems, all, uh, very obviously. That's why I have a job. Um, and then on sort of a from a little bit of a further interaction, social assistance programs as well um, are what help sort of reduce some of those like social determining factors. Um, for addiction. Now, when we go back to the legal system, um, you start with criminalization as, as one of the options. Um, right. and you can't really criminalize. It would be ineffective, especially thinking back, let's say, 60 years ago when we didn't have any tests for, you know, like a, a breathalyzer test or now there's the cannabis saliva test, those sorts of things. Right. You can test somebody for intoxication. Right. So you couldn't prosecute intoxication because it would never hold up in the courts. Right. But could do is you could find people in possession of substances. And so the decision then was made, okay, we're going to criminalize the possession of substances because that's the thing that we can actually prosecute um, right. to the extent that we want to. Um, this still goes on and it's still like, you know, most drugs are, most drugs of abuse are still um, criminalized within Western society. I'll go sort of like the most extreme example, which is that um, Duterte in uh, the Philippines, the president who, um, he promised basically to extensively prosecute all substance possession um, and included capital punishment in there. So the police are actually, I think the count was 3,000 or 30,000 Filipino citizens that were actually killed, well, punished. Um, you received the death sentence by um, state police as a result of their um, possession of substances. 
Now, obviously, let's bring it back to Canada. We're not shooting people on the streets for their substance possession, but we do have actually, in most cases, mandatory minimum sentences for, for drug possession for most drugs. Right. Um, now, on a very basic level, so this line of intervention, it assumes that the best way to decrease substance use is by deterrent methods. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, like, if there is a potential punishment that's harsh enough, most people will stop using substances and therefore you'll discontinue a market as a result. Yeah. Now, going back, though, when we talked about that definition of, of a substance use disorder um, and the negative consequence sort of aspect to diagnosing that disorder we find a fatal flaw in that deterrence argument there's already people who are using almost to mortal detriment um, and there are people who are dying now especially when we talk about the fentanyl crisis who are literally dying daily as a result of drug use and it's still not deterring them from using that's right that's right dying by the police hands be any different than dying by my own own hands right it's a much more immediate harm for them and they're they're already engaging in it so Totally. Um, so why, like, if we already have, let's just say those 11 negative impacts of substance use that are part of that DSM diagnosis, what's one more negative impact that I could potentially experience when I'm already experiencing six of them or right. seven or nine? Right. Um, so the other side of sort of like the legal system interventions is then we could also go to like the legalization of substances, of all substances. Um, we've yet to see a modern society use this approach. Yeah, um, where the legal system would essentially just remove itself from the addiction problem. Now, I believe, you know, hypothetically, what that would do would shift all responsibility to healthcare systems and social support systems to do sort of like the heavy lifting for intervening with with addiction. Yeah. Um, now, it would leave the onus of treatment up to the individual. Um, but I think it's important to note that that would like really require either a single payer healthcare system, a guaranteed basic income, um, or uh, some other scheme to allow an individual to pay for their own treatment. Um, right. Otherwise, you have you know this large proportion of individuals who are living at or below the poverty line who are experiencing substance use disorders, um, who would have no access to that treatment. Right. Um, so those are kind of like the two extreme ends is either we leave it up to the criminal justice system, we leave it completely up to sort of like social services and, and healthcare system. Um, and those are very dichotomous um, and very mutually exclusive. Right. There's that whole level of gray, which I know that you and I enjoy engaging in. Um, <laughs> and I think for me, decriminalization falls within there. Um, so decrim would be taking drug policy allowing the legal system to still prosecute some um, some possession while at the same time not have stiff criminal penalties for that. Um, we see sort of the most popular example is um, in Portugal, Portugal, where they legalize right. all simple drug possession. So still like dealers who are on the streets with massive quantities of drugs are still being prosecuted criminally. Yeah. Um, but people who are, you know, maybe just having small amounts for personal use are not are not receiving criminal penalties. As a, instead, they're getting mandated treatment, um, those sorts of things. Um, still, an a, sort of an aspect of coercion within there, um, while at the same time making sure that they're not like you know filling their prisons with the people with sort of petty drug crimes. Um, 
yeah, I'd say that those are kind of the now the thing to recognize about decrim though is that's the basically the extent of the gray area. So there's a lot of different ways you could decriminalize simple possession. You could decriminalize all possession. Um, you could just decriminalize specific drugs, um, similar to kind of how what Canada did with with marijuana. You'd legalize marijuana right. um, in terms of small quantities that you can actually legally buy now. Um, but you're still if you're caught with with above a specific amount, it is a criminal offense. Right, right. How do you see the harm reduction model fitting within that? Would you say it, it leans more towards still recognizing it as being criminalized, or do you think it's closer to being on that legalization side of the spectrum? You know, it's it's tough because I per, I see harm reduction as sort of a completely separate entity. Okay. And maybe that is just sort of my perspective from, from the healthcare world. To me, harm reduction is just finding different ways that we can make people's or reduce the harm in people's lives as a result of that problem. Um, there is a flavor at times with the criminal justice system um, imposing penalties on people for possession. And like I talked about earlier, earlier that being the only negative impact. And so as a result of, of criminalization, there is some harm introduction to people. Let's say if you had to spend jail time um, right. as a result of like, you know, petty possession of, of a substance, right. um, there could be harm introduction as a result of that, that interaction. Um, that said, in a completely criminalized state, you could still have harm reduction efforts, um, you know, like public health efforts in general are harm reduction efforts. And so if you were getting people who are using substances who were, right. let's say, hadn't been caught yet, but were receiving treatment for their hep C that they had gotten from their intravenous right. or, um, you know, we're having access to straws to, to snort drugs with those sorts of things. Um, yeah. It still coexists within yeah. that criminalized society, and there probably still would be people doing it, just probably not government um, mandated or, or supported. People. Right, exactly. Yeah, it seems a little bit hypocritical to me to still offer emergency hospital services to someone who's overdosed, but then at the same time saying that the government shouldn't step in and supply maybe a safe needle. Well, I mean, do you also want to be denying them hospital services and Maybe that's an argument that some people would make, but mm -hmm. there seems to be a bit of an inconsistency there. Tristan, mm -hmm. um, I want to bring us back to going uh, talking about legalization and how there is this sense that if we legalized all drugs, there would be a certain percentage of the population who try drugs for the first time and it immediately ruin their life. I think that's the fear that a lot of people have by mm -hmm. legalizing drugs. From your perspective as an addictions counsellor, to what extent do you see someone trying the drug for the first time as the automatic road to them becoming addicted? Going back to sort of what we talked about, the biopsychosocial spiritual world is actually first interaction with a drug didn't even fall into any of that. Yeah. Um, you have a myriad of complex factors that would probably contribute to somebody becoming addicted to a, to a drug. Um, interesting to note, um, I don't know, you probably aren't familiar with the D.A.R.E. programs that were um, prevalent, especially in uh, in the 90s and early 2000s. Um, 
And I believe, so D.A.R.E. program was drug abuse resistance education. And basically what it was, was a fear-based campaign that was often um, facilitated by police um, that would go into schools and they would talk about um, essentially only the harms associated with using drugs, um, and often, which would be hyperbolized um, and using sort of inflammatory language. And it, it was in some ways sort of a scare tactic. Um, what we saw, um, <laughs> the evidence actually shows to increased substance use among populations that were exposed to the D.A.R.E. program in, in uh, elementary and junior high schools. Um, <laughs> increased use. <laughs> which, um, you know, you could argue about what sort of the genesis of was or, or what the, the motivations were behind that. I think another interesting uh, phenomenon to go back to is... Um, the incidence of teenage cannabis use in in Colorado within the last few years is when you legalize a substance, basically what you see is uh, an increased consumption of that substance as from a society as a whole for a short while um, mm-hmm. as part of the novelty effect. And you actually now have less kids trying cannabis in Colorado as or after legalization. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So just in the sense of, okay, in maybe in the short term, there'll be a spike as people want to see what all the fuss is about, but then as it just becomes normalized into society, it's just any other product that you can consume from the store. Yeah. I think I've really noticed that living in Canada over the past couple of years with weed legalization, it's not something that, you know, I, I know it's there, but as someone who doesn't use weed all that often, if at all these days, it's it's um, something that that you um, you just forget that it's available now, and it's not something mm-hmm. like I'm all, like there's this 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 automatic force, this or like this gravitational pull to use weed. Like uh, I don't feel that at all, just because it's available. So yeah, that's um, that's something that yeah I think is really interesting and uh, a point that more and more people will will eventually appreciate. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it's tough with the, the cannabis discussion though, because it is a relatively low risk substance with or in sort of comparison to other drugs. Um, it would be tougher, let's say, to let, let's just use an extreme example. If we legalized heroin and it was allowed to be sold in stores, um, you now have a substance that could, you know, be fatal to somebody on their first use. Um, and so that obviously, you know, brings in a lot more potential negative consequences as a result. Um, to knowledge, there isn't a single person who has died as a direct result of cannabis overconsumption. Um, but there's a lot that have died as a result of heroin overconsumption in their first use. Yeah. Um, again, addictive potential um, physiologically, especially higher with heroin. And so you could potentially see higher rates that way. Um, cannabis being a relatively low, um, potential for, for, uh, physical, physiological addiction, sorry, um, makes that a little bit riskier to try a full legalization scheme. Right. Right. Of something that, yeah, is potentially much more dangerous. Just also going back to that, that biosocial spiritual model that you were talking about, it does appear to reveal another contradiction, which is that a lot of the people who have refrained from using drugs their whole life 
probably don't have a lot of those underlying conditions that would lead to addiction in the first place. So all of a sudden, introducing a lot of these drugs into society isn't likely to, maybe with the exception of heroin and these extremely strong and addictive substances, but mm -hmm. a lot of these drugs wouldn't be likely to trigger off some sort of addictive behavior, addictive relationship with this substance. Is that something that you would find as well? You know, I think it's important to keep in mind that we still do have a lot of substances, maybe not psychoactive, but let's say prescription drugs that are heavily regulated. Um, and those, um, for example, like you have for specific pharmaceuticals, you have to go and get a, a prescription from a doctor and then have that filled by a, by a pharmacist. I could see more illicit and dangerous substances being maybe decriminalized in that way where individuals could buy heavily regulated heavily controlled quantities of a specific substance again as part of that harm reduction model right. um, allowing sort of a free market um out in the open for for those really really dangerous um substances would probably not be um within our best interest in my opinion uh, in a society right right that would also seem to be a little bit in, um, inconsistent with the fact that even tobacco and alcohol do seem to be pretty heavily regulated. So exactly. how could you have something like alcohol, tobacco? Just on alcohol, that's something that, I mean, there is this weird label in society where we say drugs and alcohol, when in <laughs> fact everyone knows that alcohol is a drug, which is a really sneaky marketing ploy from the alcohol <laughs> lobby. Absolutely. But, uh, in terms of a lot of the clients that you're dealing with, how frequent is alcohol abuse and alcoholism for, for your clients? Still one of our most abused substances. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Wow. So the drug that is, is, is pretty much culturally ingrained into society is the one that's most problematic, yet a lot of these other, other substances are, are, are still criminalized. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting when you consider that um, and sort of our, our the public perception of alcohol. I was chatting with, uh, I run a men's support group that we, we do every Tuesdays. And uh, a few groups ago, we were talking about the sort of social acceptance of alcohol and that as, I don't want to use the word gateway because I think that's a really loaded term, but sort of as a, um, as a setting sort of a yeah setting stone for an individual's perspective and values towards substances of abuse mm. and starting with alcohol we see you know for example our parents drinking at a young age right um, see commercials on television we see billboards so on and so forth um and there is a, a large sort of attitudes of acceptance towards that um now the association that we build there that, that we were talking about is that now i associate good times, acceptance, all these things with a substance of abuse. And there's potential for us to sort of sublimate that same value towards other substances as we go on. Right, right. Now, obviously, that's largely determined, determined by sort of like your social setting and your support um, network and the people that you're exposed to during sort of early childhood development. But it's a very pervasive um, concept that we hear from a lot of our clients is that Alcohol maybe wasn't the first substance of abuse, but it was the first substance that was readily available, the first substance that was socially acceptable, and, and the first substance to use generally.
Right, right. That's yeah, that's really interesting. Tristan, what do you see as some of the hurdles in moving government policy to something that would be helpful in this context? I think, as with a lot of other issues, um, the political context tends to muddy the waters. Um, you know, generally, about you could talk about any issue and any issue that you've talked about on the podcast, the general population is, is uninformed. Um, it, from a very basic level, right? We talk about when we're getting into sort of like evidence and research and best practices. Um, people literally just don't know um, typically yeah. what's going on, and, and that's why we have experts in the field that are creating these in the first place. Now, what that means is that we still have, you know, let's people who sort of adhere to that original moral model um, towards addiction. Um, who see people who are addicted or people with substance use disorders as morally um, insufficient or invalid individuals. Um, and what, what that means is that you have large enough groups of people that political parties will sort of like dichotomize and grab into that issue and cause separation as a result. Yeah. Um, and so you'll see, you know, like defunding of, of treatment and let's say like more legislation or criminalization um, mandatory minimums come in um, associated with, you know, specific politicians or specific political parties because they know that they can sort of pander for votes in that, in that sense. What we know is that when we follow the evidence generally, not all the time, but generally when we follow the evidence, we actually save money um, going into let's we could talk about prevention efforts as well as the more money that we spend, but it's generally about every 10 cents we spend on prevention is worth a dollar in, in, uh, in treatment because we've reached populations before things have gotten so bad that they need intensive treatment efforts. Um, what that takes though, unfortunately is massive shifts. Um, and so to be able to sort of like slowly move people towards accepting evidence and, and recognizing where sort of like the most fiscally responsible way of doing things, um, and if that's where your value system lies, is in being fiscally responsible, um, those are there's a lot of discourse that has to happen before you come to that middle ground, um, and a lot of sort of like the fear and shame and and anger coming out of that issue, and really just talking about what the actual solutions are. Right, right. Just to play devil's advocate here, Tristan. So if we assume that yes, a lot of the support behind drug drug criminalization has been um you know is is simply political but is there any benefit to being to taking this really strong societal approach of you know only allowing tobacco and alcohol because there are too many people who are raised in really difficult conditions and that if we just allowed this open buffet of drugs to be available we'd be seeing a huge amplification of the problems that already exist. Is there any merit to that argument? Absolutely, because we have no idea. We've never tested it. Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and that causes a lot of anxiety for me. Right. I mean, there's uh, there's sort of like the the socially liberal part of me that wants to say, hey, why don't we try it out and see what happens? But the the fallout from from an effort like that could be absolutely massive. Right. Uh, you know, even if we increased um, the rates of addiction by, let's say, another 25% as a result of doing that, as a, as a result of having better, easier access to substances, our, for example, in Alberta, our public health care system would be absolutely overwhelmed. Right. Not in the addictions treatment realm, but, you know, you're looking at 
increases in emergency room visits, increases in, in some of the chronic health conditions that come along with, with chronic substance use, um, mm-hmm. there would be massive, massive fallout to that. Right. Um, and so, you know, the other thing is, is sort of that, um, the calming effect that some of these like really large scale criminalization efforts have come from is if you are not a substance user, then you don't have anything to be worried about. Mm sort of confident in where you're at, um, at at the current time. And so it's, um, it's hard to, I I could see how it could be hard to empathize with people who are, you know, using substances at that time. If, if it makes you overall believe that maybe greater control will be happening within the society, um, Mm -hmm. people do overall, um, you know, sometimes move towards authoritarian, uh, or more authoritative measures towards large scale problems like that. I mean, we're seeing it right now with COVID, right? People respond well to big um, action, sort of sweeping actions. Yeah. Taking a, a reduce yeah. the extent of a problem. And it actually does, I, I believe have sort of a calming effect over populations to know that this is what we need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, people in government are taking care of this and you just need to sort of fall into, into place with regards to that. Um, I, I see the, the individual benefit to that on a regional scale. Um, we've seen, you know, with the war in, war on drugs in the U.S. and what's going on in the Philippines right now is that it's it will not solve the problem. Right, right. And there's sort of more empathic and and better ways of, of right. drug abuse. Yeah, it's it's been almost fifty years since the war on drugs, and we still see these issues. So why not? slowly experiment with these different models we have seen success in exactly. you know, the case of portugal and why not just you know in even in the states we are seeing increasingly uh, an increasing number of states to to legalize marijuana as mm-hmm. as canada has done so why not just keep building on that if if we notice that some of these negative effects aren't as um aren't materializing in the way that we thought yeah i mean it's really interesting too when it comes to sort of the more uh, the more local scale um, within Edmonton specifically, like I've personally noticed that even though, um, there's a lot of drugs that are criminalized and possession of those drugs are criminalized. What you see is that crown prosecutors are actually sort of backing off on like the actual jail time, um, like minimum sentencing requirements for these kind of charges. Um, what you see instead is even without legislation, crown prosecutors and judges leaning more towards sort of like alternative measures, right? Um, like drug courts, mandated treatment, probation orders, uh, suspended sentencing, a bunch of different sort of like legal, legal mechanisms that you can use to maybe compel a person towards treatment, um, while still using that criminalization model, um, yeah. of simple possession there. Um, you see it, I, I've actually within the last year or so, I've only had a few, individuals that I know of that have actually been prosecuted to jail time um, for simple possession of, um, of a substance and more less, more likely than not, if they're willing to take the steps towards treatment and and those sorts of things, then they'll be given alternative measures. Um, I think largely as a result of, you know, our remand centers and our prisons are, are also fairly crowded right now. It's very expensive to, to imprison somebody or incarcerate somebody. And so, it's actually much more effective in reducing recidivism to to actually yeah. help them towards treatment than to incarcerate them. 
Right, right, absolutely. Tristan, there was something that actually um, came across a couple of weeks ago as I was looking into this this experiment called the Rat Park. Are you familiar with that one? Yeah, absolutely. Is is that? Um, do you mind explaining what the Rat Park is to the audience? Because I, I think it really blew me away, and it, it does kind of provide an example of a lot of the things that you've been talking about and puts it into a really neat little story. Yeah, so Rat Park, I think it was kind of late late seventies, early eighties. It came out of, I believe, Simon Fraser University, and basically, um, in the prior to all the uh, the experiments done with regards to addiction and looking at some of those, you know, behavioral um, uh, what's the word? Looking at how to change behavior, I guess, in, in addicted populations, we often, with most studies, start with rats and see what their behavior is like because. Um, it gives us sort of a good precursor to human behavior. And so what they're seeing was that if a rat was given the choice between uh, cocaine-infused water and regular water, right. um, would nine times out of ten, go figure, choose the cocaine-infused water. Um, now, within the rat park experiments, <laughs> they basically tried to change the paradigm and said, hey, but these rats aren't really being given a choice of anything else. Mm. So if they're provided with water and food and like the usual sort of rat running wheel in their boring old cage, well, rats are made to go out and live in nature. And mm. this is yeah. Vancouver and like <laughs> a lot more sort of stimulation. Um, and so the rat park studies put rats in sort of like an, a, a utopia. So they gave them other rats to, to, uh, to socialize with. They had, you know, things to do, different, uh, like, scenarios and scenery within these larger cages. Okay. Um, and when yeah, provided nice. with, the, exactly, and when provided when, with the option between regular water and cocaine-infused water, um, it, it was actually reversed. Mm. The rats overwhelmingly mm. chose just regular water because they're engaged in sort of like the social life activity of a rat. Um, this is a really, really simple study, but I think really pointed towards you know if we do allow people for a better life um you know freedom from some of those um socially determined factors right um and give them options towards like we talked about with maslow's hierarchy that self-actualization and fulfilling right. lives then people generally will choose to not use the drugs right right so is what all of these aspects of the debate uh telling me is that Drug addiction isn't really about the drug itself, but it's about how can we provide conditions for, for which people can thrive in society, people can have purpose and people can have meaning. And these are the conditions that we need to get right in order to minimize drug use or minimize negative drug use within society. Yeah, I think that pretty well sums it up. Right. Well, Tristan, do you have any final thoughts, thoughts that you'd like to impart on the audience before we wrap this up? <laughs> any final thoughts um no i think it's just uh it's interesting that we get to have these conversations because there's uh there's just so much information to sort of delve through i realize that i'm sort of but one cog in the in the wheel of all of this research and insight and experience uh right. and relatively little experience but i feel like <laughs> i feel like it's been a lot of years up until now yeah. um and in an ever-evolving field um you know there's there's changes that are happening to my field that we have no idea about right now um, that will become big within the next 10 years. And we just have no idea what they are right now. So 
Um, it's an exciting time sort of in the field of addiction because we're really, really gaining some traction. We're seeing really, really great results um, with new and old ways of treating it and looking at it. And I think people are really, really kind of coming towards having an open discourse about what the best way to get at, you know, the negative impacts of, of substances on our society. Yeah. Well, that was a perfect way to end this, Tristan. I really appreciate your time. Thanks a lot, Rob. I think they're all insane. If you got value from this episode, please do me a quick favor. First, hit subscribe. And second, leave a five-star review if you're podcasting or hit the like button and the notification bell if you're YouTubing. There, too easy. See you next time.